Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We're reading Judges this quarter. It's crazy. Crazy things happen. Did you like that segue? That was pretty smooth. Um, it was anyways, which is actually not even a word. It's supposed to be anyway. Um, we're doing Judges. We're doing Judges 7. This is our second week on Gideon. Uh, next week, Teddy is going to be teaching on Abimelech, who's the one anti-judge in the book. He is um, the bad judge. And anyways, as we get into the story of Gideon, my question for you as we start is, um, where is a place or time in your life where you've seen people unite who normally divide? And by that I mean we have a lot of things that divide us. Uh, Ages, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomics, education level, uh, criminal background, personality, politics, religion. Have you ever seen a place or been had an experience where all those things that normally divide us are, are, uh, disappear and people are unified? And of course, for that kind of thing to happen, right, for that kind of experience to happen, for the things that normally divide us to disappear and people to unify, two things have to happen. A, our natural-born instinct to judge others and evaluate others and say, oh, I can't relate to them because, and then articulate all the differences, right? That has to disappear, that inborn instinct to, tell our, to make judgments about someone else and then tell ourselves we can't relate to them. But then also our inborn instinct to say, I can't belong, right? Here are all the reasons I don't fit in. Here are all the reasons I'm not qualified, that internal sense. Uh, I, I feel awkward. I don't fit here. That has to disappear. So what is the one thing that happens, and when this happens, all those differences disappear? And I suspect y'all have actually experienced this moment. The one time I've seen this happen and experienced this happen, and, and certainly more than one time, is this. When glory is given, where glory is due. When glory is given, where glory is due. Another word for that is praise. The place, or one of the places where this happens, right, is a Taylor Swift concert. Here's the clever pop culture moment, right? What happens at a Taylor Swift concert? Something so amazing happens that whether or not you're a 12-year-old girl or a 50-year-old man who have absolutely nothing in common, y'all are like, it just doesn't even matter. This is awesome. When something awesome happens that's so compellingly awesome, the things that normally divide us just, just fall away. Our own insufficiencies fall away. How we can't relate to these other people fall away, right? It happens in sports stadiums. I think it happens most, secondly, most supremely at a Taylor Swift concert. But those erase all the boundaries that divide us. Or Billy Joel concert, maybe. There you go. You know, so you can understand the sermon, right? Um, when we encounter something... Rob really likes Billy Joel, but... Um, <laughs> When we encounter something outside of ourselves that we all recognize as awesome, all the dividers fall away. Finding that moment in reality where with your mouth and also authentically with your heart, you say, along with everybody else that you don't agree with on anything else, we all say, that's awesome. 
And the problem is, unless there is something outside of us that is that compelling, compelling enough to distract us from ourselves, if we don't have that thing, we run around trying to get glory for ourselves, trying to get credit, trying to get recognition, trying to get acceptance. What sin is, is it's slavery to a self-salvation project, to acquiring our own glory, our own self-actualization, whatever you want to call it. And there's, I don't think there's any better way to describe the emotional and psychological terror that happens at Stanford's campus than slavery to self-salvation. Whether it, it, Slavery to self-salvation is whatever that narrative you're telling you about yourself that makes you glorious. I used to have this little... My major comparison point in my life for most of my life was my older brother. And I used to have this little narrative that I told myself that made me feel valid as a person. Let me tell you about pathetic... I'm kind of opening myself up to you a little bit. But I used to always say, I, could, I have to either be able to be smarter than him or be able to beat him up. And what growing up, I was always smarter than him. And then at some point, he got really, really smart. He has five degrees post-grad now. <coughs> knows like six or seven languages. is published and everything. But right about that time when he passed me academically, his body essentially withered and I started lifting weights. And now I can destroy him. <laughs> and I was like... As long as I was either smarter than him or beat him up, right, I had something. It's my thing. And we all want to have something. we got to have some glory. If there's not something outside of us that's glorious enough to distract us from ourselves, then what we're left with is trying to manifest some glory for ourselves, manifest our thing. One of my girls the other night said, Dad, I don't know what my special thing is. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, Grace is a great speller, and Bill is really good at math, but what's my special thing? And I was, I was furious. I was like, I don't care, and nobody cares whether or not you have a special thing. And anybody that's going to value you, if, uh, only if you find and can glorify in your own special thing, is not worth being your friend. Right? But that's what we all want, is our special thing. What's going to be my salvation? What's going to be the, the thing that makes me important? And here's what's the best thing about the best things in life. This is what makes the best things so good, is they actually free you from thinking about yourself and your own glory. That's what's great about those moments, is you, you forget to think about yourself because that thing is awesome. And that's actually called rest, is what that, that, that moment is called. And the worst, and in the, dar- the darkest and worst possible place in life, and we've all been there, we're definitely there when we were little kids, but we have the capacity to do it now, is when your imagination and your mind and your heart are so turned in on you, and yourself getting credit, and yourself getting validation, and you being acknowledged, and your glory that you want from someone or somewhere, somebody better recognize, recognize it, you're so turned in on yourself that you can't even enjoy the good things anymore that you can't walk into the Taylor Swift concert and enjoy it because you have your arms crossed and you're just still working that narrative of like, I'm not being appreciated, I'm not being recognized, I'm not being glorified here. Right? We've had that moment as kids where we refuse to receive and enjoy something good our parents give us because we're too angry about the fact that we don't have personal glory. The best news for our turned-in-on-ourselves souls is that salvation is from God. And that's what this passage is about. Is that salvation is from God alone. That He alone is doing something glorious. 
And that's what he's reiterating over and over in these verses in Gideon. And, I, and Zach read from Judges 6 the couple of verses where Gideon's first called. And God calls Gideon and he knows he's not a worthy candidate. And he doesn't have the power or the pedigree to do what God is asking him to do. He says, I am the weakest. I'm from the weakest clan. And I'm, from, and I'm the weakest in my own household. He's not the man for the job. Now today, pedigree is determined by education and influence, right? How much you know and who you're connected to. And Gideon is saying, I didn't go to Stanford. Not only did I not go to Stanford, I went to welding school in Arkansas and I failed out. That's what he's saying in our words, right? No offense if you're from Arkansas. I just went kind of general southern right there. But I'm from Alabama, right? I didn't want to say Alabama. But... Right? This is, this is him saying, I don't know Peter Thiel. I don't know President Hennessy. I know Daryl, who works at Chevron. If you want a free 20-ounce Coke, I can probably score you one of those. That's the influence I have. That's my network, right, is Daryl. Right? No offense if any of y'all are named Daryl or good friends named Daryl. Um, but we measure pedigree by influence and education. They measure pedigree by family. I'm the weakest son, and I'm in the weakest family. Now, why would God choose him? It's in keeping with the massive theme through the whole of Scripture. That they made this point at Grace Pres this past Sunday. God chooses the lesser son in Jacob. He chooses the guy with the speech impediment named Moses. He chooses the lesser son, David. He chooses the tax collector, Matthew. He chooses the persecutor of Christians, Paul. All to show that the surpassing power of salvation is from God alone. Salvation could only come from God. Gideon is a horrible choice. It's a terrible strategy. But God knows he has to up the ante, so the verses go in chapter 7. We're told Gideon has 32,000 men at this point. In chapter 8, verse 10, we find out what the Midianite forces look like. They have 135,000 men in their army. So the odds at this point are 6 to 1, roughly. I don't know. And y'all do the math. That's what y'all do. Right? 32,000 to 135,000, you know, it's ballpark. Um, God recognizes that even with these odds, we have an incredible capacity to glorify ourselves. Right? We're like, that's a huge upset, but if 32,000 beats 135,000, you know, maybe this is just the greatest upset in military history. Right? And so God says, I've got to whittle these forces down so you will know that this victory is from me. To keep you from saying, verse 2, that my own hand has saved me. So what he does is he says, go, Gideon, go and tell anybody who's afraid, if you're afraid, you can go home. And this is not any kind of judgment on people who are afraid. God uses people who are afraid all the time. If you read chapter 6, if you were with us last week, you actually find out Gideon is afraid. We find out later in this chapter, he is still afraid. So this is nothing about, this is nothing bad about people being afraid. God can and he does use people that are afraid. It's no judgment on being scared. God's sole purpose is to make it even more clear that if they win, it can only be God's work. So 22,000 people leave. They're down to 10,000 people. Odds or the ratio is 13 to 1. 13 Midianites to 1 Israelite. God says this is still too many. So he tells Midian, y'all go on a water break, and I'm going to tell you who to take with you. And then people drink one of two ways. They either drink from the ground, or they uh, scoop up water and drink from their hand. And God says, hey, hey, the 300 people that drink from their hand, take them with you, send everybody else home. 
No, is there significance to the ways of drinking? No, there's not. God is the sole purpose is to create a mechanism for shrinking Gideon's army. And what does whittling an army of ten thousand down to three hundred do? Makes it uncontestable that if they win, it's got to be a miracle. It has to be God intervening, God saving His people. Right, thirteen to one. We love taking credit so much. We'd love to take credit for winning 13 to 1. Now the ratio is 450 to 1. And at this point, victory can only be from God. And at this point, God even recognizes, now you understand that I'm asking you to do something impossible, and we see Gideon's afraid again in verse 10. God can see this looks crazy. Verse 10, he says, listen, I understand if you're afraid, and it's hard for you to believe that I've given the Midianites into your hand, God knows that Gideon is not excited. He doesn't want to do this, and he's afraid. He says, go sneak into the Midianite camp. And he does, and he overhears Midianites talking and talking about a dream that they had. And the dream is bizarre. He had a dream that a huge loaf of bread rolled into our camp and smashed the tent. Another Midianite is like, I wonder if that means that God is going to give us into the hand of Gideon's army. And that's tremendous encouragement for Gideon. He gets a little boost, right? And so what happens, what unfolds over the rest of the chapter, in chapter 8, God does give the Midianites in their hand without using a single sword, right? They didn't have advanced technology or anything like that. They didn't have a super weapon. Gideon takes 300 men into the camp, Midianite camp, in the middle of the night, and they incite a riot. And the Midianites riot and kill each other. And chapter 8 is the rest of the military action of pursuing and finishing off the Midianites. They were subdued, and the land had rest. This whittling down of the army, this incredible odds, this crazy narrative of God choosing a bad leader, a small army, making it smaller and shrinking it further. God's entire purpose is he's like, you've got to see, this is me. The salvation is from the Lord. And what I want to do tonight now is just spend the rest of the time talking about four implications of that. And the first implication is this. When we begin to understand that salvation is from God alone, we don't contribute it to it, that turns fear into worship. And this, this implication comes right from the text. It comes right from Gideon himself. Because once Gideon walks into the, sneaks into the Midianite camp and it begins to dawn on him, he hears them over-talking like the Midianites wondering, Are we, I, think, I wonder if we're going to lose to Gideon's army. And Gideon all of a sudden understands, like, I think God is going to do this. <coughs> Before Gideon goes home, while he is still doing reconnaissance, he begins to worship the Lord. His fear turns into worship. Right? If we seek salvation apart from God, or maybe just like co-working with God, with our own hands and with our own strength, it can take on a lot of different forms. We can do that a lot of different ways. You can do it through religious means, right? Asking yourself, am I religious enough? Am I moral enough? How am I doing? You have your list of I should release, right? Of all the things, I should really read the Bible, I should really go to church, I should really get involved in RUF, I should really do a small group, whatever it is. But it doesn't always take on the form of religion. Our self-salvation project by our own strength with our own hands oftentimes can look very a-religious or irreligious. Everybody is looking for salvation. It's the driving force in our life. So we attach ourselves to some dream, right? A relationship, a marriage, a cause, an achievement, <laughs> acceptance. I recently had a friend 
who knew what his dream was very clearly. Y'all have these friends, maybe some of y'all, you know what your dream is, that this thing, if it's actualized in my life, that's it. I don't know how to dream past it because that's my salvation. And he found out two weeks ago that he has a permanent medical condition that is taking that dream away from him for the rest of his life. This thing, he, we talked about all the time, he said, this is the only thing that makes me happy. Two weeks ago, he found out he can never do it ever again. He had planned his whole life. He had been, he, like some of y'all, organized his whole life. He was achieving. He was heading on that course. He had everything in place. Medical condition he couldn't have prevented. That's just inside his body. His dream is gone forever. And we remain afraid. And that's why we're anxious. Is because at any moment, your dreams and your plan for saving yourself can be taken because all our strength and all our plans can be erased in a minute by a virus, by a mistake, by someone else, right? The the Stanford kid that got arrested last week, a brief lapse in judgment, that guy's life is over, whether or not he gets convicted, right? It was wrong, but that was a that was a 15-minute bad decision. His life's over. His dreams are erased. Right? We live this insane delusion of control that, what, that I do have control. I can manifest my dreams. I can get what I want out of this life. And that delusion of control is the source of our anxiety and insecurity. And it's a lie that we all choose to believe because our deeper self actually knows it's not true. If we sit through and reason through it, we know it's not true that we have control. But our shallow self won't admit it because we actually can't deal with the reality that we don't have control. So we actually choose a lie. I think we all know on some level that we don't have control. And as long as your hope of salvation rests in anything that's precarious, namely yourself, then precarious hope is the definition of insecurity. And no matter how much of your hope that you achieve, it will always remain precarious. Regardless of how much success you experience, you will always remain afraid and insecure and anxious. But on the other hand, if you trust in God alone for your salvation, if you remove the burden of salvation from your own hands, from the hope of accomplishing your own dreams, and see God is saying, I alone save, then what happens is all the energy that's getting diverted towards fear and anxiety, all that time and all that stuff happening inside of you, your insides, feeling all the fear and anxiety, what it does is it pivots to worship. All that energy gets used to worship. That's what happens to Gideon. Because if you stop trying to save yourself and you trust God alone, what left do you have to fear? This is what John says in his letter, that perfect, the perfect love of God casts out fear. Loved people people who've rested in the love of God and his love, that his love is our salvation, that his love actually washes away our self-salvation projects and replaces it with his saving grace. When you're not afraid, all that energy you're spending right now on fear gets reallocated to worship. And when your worship sours, see if it's not true that it's souring because you're trusting in your own ability to make your own dreams for your own self-salvation. When we understand God alone saves, fear turns into worship. Secondly, it opens the way for anyone to salvation. 
If salvation is from God and it's not in our hands, in other words, not determined by our capacity to be religious enough or Christian enough or moral enough or work hard enough, then what's the pre-qualification process? Well, how do, how do some people become Christians and others not, right? Because there's, there's only a certain type of person can be saved. It's not true. In fact, belief that salvation is in our hands, that's the only kind of salvation that's closed off to people based on moral performance or work ethic or ability or discipline. The salvation that Stanford offers is incredibly conditional. We, we actually love exclusive forms of salvation that are works-based. We love it. It's what makes Stanford exceptional. It's why your degree is worth anything. Is because people are excluded. If everybody's included, your degree would be worthless, wouldn't it? We love exclusion. We love works-based salvation. That's why we can't conceive of what the Bible is actually saying. That's the reason it's so hard to believe. It's actually because we're so addicted to the idea of our works being our salvation. Because Stanford, its salvation is conditional. Your parents, their salvation is conditional. Your cause, your friends, all of those things are incredibly conditional, aren't they? You've got to be the right type of person and act a certain way, and you could forfeit any of those things at any given time according to your behavior. Right, And oftentimes we might, you might find yourself in this place of thinking the free offer of God's love, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that's a candidate for that. Not me, I'm not a religious type, I'm not moral enough, I'm not like Christians are. I don't meet the bare minimum standard for what it means to be a Christian. That means you just haven't heard the Bible yet. Because this is the amazing thing about the New Testament. It's precisely the people who know they don't meet the bare minimum standards of holiness that are always far closer to the kingdom of God and understand Jesus far deeper because you understand at that point, you begin to understand the cross at that point. You begin to realize, okay, if he let me in, that means anybody can come in. Yes, now you understand. And the people who always think, there's a lot to commend about me are always the people that Jesus is saying, oh, they're far from the kingdom. The people who are still saying, there's a lot I've done with my own hands and in my own life that I think God's going to be pretty happy with. And he's probably going to help me out. Those people are the furthest from the kingdom, according to Jesus. When you know you're not a Christian type, you're very close to the kingdom. And then that we sang the song... Come, you who are weary and heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, till you're better, you will never come at all. People all the time. I do CrossFit. People all the time say, "I got to get in shape before I come do CrossFit with you," right? Which is not true about CrossFit. Just like it's not true about the gospel, right? You don't tarry and wait around till you're Christian enough to come do business with God. If you come to Him that way, you'll never understand anything He's talking to you about. Don't tarry till you're better. Because like the hymn says, not the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Nothing else works like this. This is why it's so hard to conceive of. We all hear the words that are coming out of my mouth. I even hear them. And we kind of vaguely can reiterate the principle of like, this is a free offer of the gospel for anyone. Our hearts don't understand this because nothing else in our lives works this way. Marriage doesn't work this way. Stanford doesn't work this way. Dating doesn't work this way. Employment doesn't work this way. Achievement doesn't work this way. Friendship doesn't work this way. Now, in all those things, we have a lot of friendships that can last pretty long time, right, for a while. All of those things have performance limits on them. Nothing else says it's all by God's grace. 
All of the things you can disqualify yourself from, everything, requires some work on your part. If salvation is God's doing and we don't in any way contribute to our own salvation, Romans says nobody's saved by works of the law. No one. Then the only requirement is simply we cry out for it. That's the picture we have in Judges of Israel. What qualifies them for being saved by God in this Judges cycle that we see happen over and over again where they fall into sin? The only thing they ever contribute to their salvation is crying out for it. That's what God requires of you. There's one requirement. Crying out for salvation. But you see, if you think you still have the capacity to meet God halfway, you're not going to cry out. You're going to tarry until you're better. Right? If God alone saves, fear turns into worship, anybody is welcome, unlike anything else in the world. Thirdly, it destroys oppression. The reason God goes such great lengths and judges to say, don't you see it's me who does the saving? That it's his gift, that it's from him. That we haven't earned it, we haven't contributed to it. One of the reasons the Bible is so serious about this is because the Bible is more committed to healing humanity than any of us are. And here's the most humane thing you'll choose to believe tonight, if you choose to believe it. Maybe in a couple days, or if you want to talk to me about it. The most humane thing you'll do is begin to believe the biblical, and I'm going to do this, Calvinist doctrine of total depravity. And if you haven't heard of this, this is a Calvinist doctrine. In short, it's a summary of Scripture's teaching all over the place that we are all sinful before the holiness of God, that all of us like sheep have gone astray. And it's not that we've sinned a couple of times, but actually that we have a natural, born with it, got it from our parents because they got it from their parents because they got it from their parents, bent nature to love ourselves and worship created things instead of love God and worship Him. And so we sin and we are naturally sinful. The reason we sin is because that's us. It's our DNA. It's our nature. We could not do it. And at first glance, we all think like, ah, oh, this is that's weird stuff in Christianity. I don't like it's so not hopeful, right? It's so pessimistic about the human condition. And that's just not true. Understanding and believing in total depravity is the most hopeful decision you'll make tonight. Because there's three fundamental views we have. For, this is a little bit reductionistic. There's three fundamental views you can take about humanity, right? Man is basically good, right? There are good people and there are bad people. There are bad people. Those are the three views offered to us, right? First, man is basically good. You know, everybody's basically good. I'm not going to spend time on this first one. Here's why. Because anybody who believes that is out of touch. Like, We can talk about that one later. I don't really want to talk about that one later. Because to say man is basically good is offensive to everyone who's ever been abused, which statistically is half of us. Right? And that's just talking about the evil of abuse, let alone big social evils like genocide and like war, let alone daily evils that we all participate in, like lying and stereotyping. That view is insane. And what we're left with is two other views, right? That the view that, well, there are good people and there are bad people, or the Calvinist view, they're just bad people. Right? You might call that the Pauline 
view that they're just bad people, right? When Romans 3, Paul says, no one is good, not one. That's where John Calvin got his stuff. But everyone's like, oh no, there's too much Calvin tonight. Um, Some people are good, some people are bad. That's our prevailing view. That's what most of us operate under, right? There are bad people in the world. There are good people in the world. We've got to deal with the disparity between the two, so we've got to find the bad people, punish them, right? And the good people, we need to preserve their rights, sometimes reward them. So if there are bad people and good people, we've got to root out the bad people. We have the justice system for that. We have just war theory for that. We have a higher income tax rate for the bad people because they're all rich people until we become rich. Then we realize, ah, right? But (laughs) the source of pain and suffering in the world is the bad people. And we've got to locate them and we've got to deal with them. And that's what we love to do, isn't it? Create our standard for what makes bad people bad and good people good. And, of course, everybody wants to place themselves in the good people camp, right? So in your definition, we all fall within the good people camp. So the standards for good people is biased towards looking someone a lot like me. And the Internet has become this place of insane vitriol because it's the place where we all yell at the bad people who disagree with us and vindicate ourselves by posting the people who agree with us. Right? Because those are the good people. Every single instance of oppression since the foundation of the world has originated from the belief that there are good people and bad people. That is the source of all human oppression ever. Because some people define it across racial lines, across ethnic lines, socioeconomic lines. We use all kind of lines, educational lines, right? Because we think we have the standard for what's good, and oftentimes our standard shifts because we can't even keep our own standard. And those people, oh, those people, they don't get it, the bad people. So we've got to get them. We need to make rules and laws about them to protect them from themselves and us from them, right? They've got to be silenced. And the one way that you can eliminate the hope at a peaceful society is to divide the world between good people and bad people. Here's what one Christian thinker said. If you don't hear the bad news about yourself, you will never know yourself. And what will happen is you'll be pumped up with false confidence and false virtue, and you'll think it gives you license. And a large share of all the cruelties of the world will follow. Evil done knowingly is really rare. Evil done knowingly is really rare compared to the evil done by people who are sure they themselves are good and that evil is hatefully concentrated in some other person. Some other person who makes your flesh creep because they've become exactly as unbearable and as creepy and as disgusting as you fear the mess would be beneath your own mask of virtue if you ever dared look at it. When we create categories that the Bible does not create, but we love to create, of bad people and good people, you become an oppressor. The one posture, the one view of humanity that eliminates our ability to boast in ourselves, to think well of ourselves and worse of others, to completely remove the possibility of stratifying culture into good and bad, into deserving and undeserving, into right and wrong types, people who don't get it and people who do get it, the only thing that will remove that is the doctrine of total depravity. That we're all bad. And it's not that we're all bad, but some people turn it around and become good, and God finds them and loves them. He's like, hey, that's great. 
That's false Christianity, if you've seen that practice anywhere. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. The gospel is, salvation is all from God. We contribute nothing to it. We couldn't if we ever wanted. It's all of grace. The only thing that ever keeps us from receiving His grace is our unwillingness to acknowledge our sin-sick condition. And this means that anyone who truly understands that salvation is God's free grace, anyone who gets that they can never, if anyone who gets that can never see or treat the greatest people in the world or the worst people in the world as any better or worse than them. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not a result of anything you've done so that no one can boast. The doctrine of God's salvation, uh, of salvation is God's free gift to the undeserving destroys any possibility of being dismissive of being judgmental, of being oppressive, of being patronizing, of being elitist, paternalistic, arrogant, boastful, or proud. In fact, it will cause you to have compassion and sympathy on the worst people in the world. Because you realize, it was nothing about me. And the seed of all kinds of evil is totally inside of me. And when Christians are found to be like, we sometimes, maybe often are, judgmental and dismissive and arrogant, it's not because we are Christians, it's because we're not Christian enough, and what we need is more Christ, not less. When Christians become judgmental, you can, you can identify, ah, oh, that's the place where they're not understanding the gospel. It's not because they get the gospel too much, because they don't get it enough, because we don't get it enough. If salvation is God's only doing, we contribute nothing. Oppression dies. It dies. It's the only thing that can kill oppression. Locking up the bad people, preserving good people, doesn't do it. Believing everybody good is just asinine. You want to kill oppression? You got to believe everybody's bad. So, salvation from God turns fear into worship. It means the gospel is for anyone. It actually ends oppression, and lastly, it ennobles every human being. If salvation is God's work, what's your place in his mission? Look at Gideon. He's nobody. Do you think God, when you read scripture, do you see him calling ministry superstars into his mission? Because that's what we love in American Christianity. We love the superstars. Right? Who are dynamic and powerful and have a big machine behind them. But maybe you feel, I'm a Christian, but I don't have it together. I have baggage. I don't read my Bible every day like the really serious Christians do. I don't pray like those people do. I don't have this dynamic rhetoric for talking about Jesus. I don't have like this incredible capacity. I don't have answers. I don't have my Bible down. I don't know it. I'm new to it. I'm the kind of person that can't really do this kind of stuff. If you feel that way, now you completely understand how Gideon felt. Now you're finally prepared to be a minister of the gospel. If you're like, no, 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 anybody but me, you don't understand. Okay, now you're ready. Now I know you're ready. If all you have is like, here's all I got. Jesus died for me and rose again. Then guess what? That's what Paul says. This is all I got. If, you're, if you think all I have is Jesus died for me and he rose again from the dead, and I feel dumb when I say that. Guess what? That's exactly what Paul says about his own ministry. 
then you're in the same boat. When he says in 1 Corinthians, I'm not a crafty debater or a philosopher. The Greeks like great arguments. I can't produce powerful signs and powerful moments. The Jews love powerful moments. I just have the story of Jesus and him crucified. And Paul says of himself, I preached among y'all in weakness, and I was trembling, and I used stumbling words. How is it that the gospel of Jesus made such an impact in Paul's ministry? Because it's the power of God. The church is not a place where superstars shine. It is a place where God receives and uses weak people. God uses people who are afraid. One implication is that faith, having faith, doesn't mean that you're someone who's not afraid. A lot of times we think that, right? If I really had faith, I wouldn't be afraid. God calling you to something doesn't mean that you're excited about it. We like to think about that. Well, how, I know, how do I know if God wants me to do this thing or is calling me into this place or whatever it is or to these people? It is not an indicator that God is calling you if you're really excited about it and think you're equipped for it. You need to go read the Bible because more often than not in the Bible, a pretty good sign that God is calling you to something is this. You don't want to do it and you don't have the ability to do it. Neither desire nor the ability. If you're like, I think God's asked me to do something, but I don't want to, and I don't think I can, then he's probably calling you. That would be more in line with scripture. Right? If you think God is calling you and you're enthusiastic about it, and you think you're pretty suited to be successful in it, then are you trusting God for anything? If you're afraid, then moving forward in obedience means you're trusting God. Moving forward in obedience when you're afraid is a much bigger sign of faith than being excited. In the Bible, faith is more often exhibited when you do something you're not excited about and when you do it saying, all right, God, I'm going to trust you. Whatever it is, truths that you need to tell someone, sin that you need to confess, sharing the love of Christ where you need to share the love of Christ, forgiving people that you need to forgive, letting go of trusting in your dreams. Letting go of bitterness. Trusting what God has clearly said instead of what you want. Serving someone you don't want to or have the time to. Walking with someone through a dark period. No one feels equipped for any of these moments. If you do feel equipped, come and talk to me because maybe you don't need to go in that moment just yet. I don't think you understand what God's calling you to if you're like, yeah, I got this. We think you can only do those things if you're strong and you're suited for it. If salvation is from God, you can only do these things when you're the least prepared and the least suited for it. The worst thing you can do is wait around thinking, I need to become a certain type of person before I can go and do what God wants me to do. God saves. So go do something stupid. And if you feel brittle and you feel foolish trying to obey God, now you understand Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians that we have this treasure, the gospel. And it's being carried in the world through these fragile jars of clay, which is us. And Paul gets it. He says God's bringing the gospel into the world through fragile jars of clay, us, so that it will be shown that the surpassing power to save is from God alone. The mission of God is the only task that ennobles everybody. And all the other endeavors we engage in that in order to give us some meaning, we get our meaning precisely from excluding other people. Right? This endeavor is worthwhile because other people can't do it. 
this is the only endeavor that actually ennobles everyone. I wish I had some cool conclusion and try to think of some great story with children in it so that we all be moved by it. I don't have a cool conclusion. So here's the conclusion, right? One sentence for Christians, for skeptics, for non-Christians, for you not know where you are. Will you please confess the weariness and folly of your self-salvation project and cry out to Jesus to save you? Let's pray.